0: first four chapters, if I were to be given a couple of hours, I could really move your hearts. And Paul was moved at this point. He was moved at this point because he's just laid out this whole thought of who Abraham is and what faith is and and what hope is and how it, it never wavered. His, his, his faith and trust and belief in the promises that God gave to Abraham, it never wavered in the face of everything that screamed no. Everything that said it would never happen. How many of you guys are familiar with Abraham's story? Anybody not familiar with Abraham's story? So he's, he's told at 75 he's going to be a father of many nations and by a hundred he doesn't have a kid. But he's told God keeps dragging him out of the out of bed in the middle of the night. Look at the stars, Abraham. What do you want me to look at? This? Look at the stars. This is all your kids out there. Yeah, right, I don't have even one. You know, or he'd, you know, look at the sands of the sea. You know, those are your children. Yeah, right, I don't even have one. You know, so God is constantly coming at him with grand plans. But yet. Abraham lived in today where there was nothing that would even point to the plan even beginning. But his only job was to believe God. He had nothing to do with making it happen other than he believed. So here's this huge, grand Wonderful story, and you know, the passage against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. This is all the end of chapter 4. Um, since he was about a 100 years old, and Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith in, and gave glory to God. How many of you guys get more and more strengthened in your faith? The harder things get, you do. Well, you're way better than me (laughs) because the harder things get for me, I'm like what? Ah, I start whining instead of I start wavering instead of you know waxing strong. I don't I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But he didn't. You know, he got stronger in the face of all that. And um this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. the words it is credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification So he ends he close out chapter four, so grand and so powerful you could just see him. and you know we know that Romans Paul dictated it. To a guy, I can't remember which turtle. What's his name? In chapter sixteen, it tells us the name of the guy who wrote it down for Paul. But so you can imagine, I don't, you know, what was Paul doing when he was dictating this? Was he just lost in the spirit and preaching, or or was he sitting building a tent, like we know he was a tent maker? Was he sewing and, and just talking and getting moved on? I don't know what was going on, but he was certainly at a very high point at the end of chapter four. So when, and there were no chapters in his, his dialogue. We've put those in since then, chapters and verses so that we can find our place in the Bible really easily. So he's at this high point, this high crux of this amazing story and faith and fighting through the hard things and just believe and how cool it is. And then he, he's going to take a shift. And so he goes, therefore, because of all that, Therefore, now he's going to take a shift, and usually when he takes a shift, it's going to take a shift into practicality a little bit. He'll he'll be talking really high as far as theology and, and spiritual things, and then therefore, that shift usually brings it, it down, kind of li- lands the plane into kind of practicality. So therefore, since we have been, ju- and this is chapter 5, since we have been justified through faith, what does the word justified mean? Anybody want to give it a stab? Justified. It's a big word. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what you guys, right there. So every time you see the word justified, you have to say in your head, just as if I'd never sinned. So you have been just as if you'd never sinned. You've been justified. The blood of Jesus spilt on that cross The blood of the perfect man, Jesus, who did not deserve any death. The wages of sin is death. He never sinned. He never sinned. He did not want to go to the cross. Did you guys all hear that on Sunday? He did not want to. You heard that in the Garden of Gethsemane. If this cup can pass from me, please, but I will do it. He was obedient and he was perfect. Write the word obedient down because this is going to be really big tonight. The word obedient is going to be very big tonight. I've touched on it on Sunday and hopefully I can bring it out here tonight really well because this chapter and um, some of the chapters ahead of us, are, it's going to get big. But obedience is huge. Jesus was perfectly obedient. Anybody in this room perfectly obedient? Come on. Sometimes, <laughs> I'm perfectly obedient for two and a half minutes every day. The rest of the time, forget it. right? Yes? OK. You get three and a half. I can only pull off two and a half. So just as if I'd never sinned, therefore, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, not through anything you've done, not through your incredible beauty, your incredible knowledge. Your incredible, your incredible sacrifice. Not through a single shred of anything, but just because you believe you are transformed and justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I had never, no, you don't understand never, never ever sinned. God can look at you and through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have, you have no debt to him. None whatsoever. That is an amazing thing. The God of the universe, who created the absolute universe, who thought up this whole mess, this whole kit and caboodle. You think about your DNA, you think about chemistry, you think about astronomy, and you think about this, all the amazing, amazing biology and geology and yada yada ology, whatever it is, all the amazing, incredible things in this world. The, the mind that thought that up. It was just a, like that. It didn't take him long at all. So this is just a small smidge of how amazing he is. And he would look at you through the blood of Jesus and never see imperfection. Because remember, God is holy. God is completely perfect. He is never, ever anything less than perfect. He is completely perfect. And we are completely imperfect. How can imperfection ever approach perfection? Because if imperfection ever got close to perfection, guess what perfection would be? Imperfect. He can't have it. That's why we can't just be good enough and make it to heaven. Because heaven's a perfect place. And if you are good enough, with just a, you know, a little, little bit of sin maybe, but you know, a whole lot of goodness in you, but still a little bit, but you know, mo- way more goodness, You can't get into heaven because if you came into heaven, you would ruin it. Right? Perfection, holiness, is the only thing that can approach God. And through the blood of Jesus, when you are placed in Jesus, you are made perfect. Let that soak in. You are made perfect. That's why... In chapter 8, he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ. There's plenty of condemnation for everyone who's outside of Jesus. But if we're in him, there is none because you're seen as perfect. So let's come back to our chapter 5. We better get rolling or we're never going get, to get her done. Therefore, since you have been justified through faith. See, that sentence right there has to mean something to you. If that sentence doesn't mean anything to you, it doesn't light you up. You don't understand it yet. The first one. Since you have been justified through faith. You have been justified through faith. You have been just as if you'd never sinned through faith. Yes? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, I love it. Very simple with with me in paradise he didn 't have to do anything right he was a he was a bad dude. I agree absolutely, totally so since you 've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God, and this is something that we had talked about the last time that peace is a very interesting thing. I want uh, somebody to look up Mark 5.34 and someone else to look up Luke 7.50, verse 50. Mark 5.34, who's got that one? Almost. So peace is supposed to be, and I told you guys this last week, the special legacy that is bequeathed to, to Christians. Peace. Peace is supposed to be your the mark of who you are in Christ. Peace. What does peace sound like to you? What is it? I have a question. Uh huh. Why so difficult for us, at least for me, as a Christian, to really not live in that peace? Yes. Well. He teaches us how to. And if you remember um, in, in so much of my teaching where we were close to God, Adam and Eve, disbelief, disobedience fell. So we're far from God. And we live now not in a perfect situation. Now we live in a broken, cursed world, right? And we're far from God. And through faith in Jesus Christ, he takes our heart, in Jesus and seats us in heavenly places. Our heart is one with the, with Christ. Our physical body is tethered still to this physical world. Okay. So we're living in this physical world that is filled with the curse. And filled with sin and filled with brokenness, filled with everything that is so far from God. (laughs) There's just a, a shadow. We see, you know, a sunrise and we can all of a sudden see God in that. You know, there's just, there's glimpses of God in, in the universe that we can see, but it has been definitely damaged by sin. And there's, there's chapters in Romans that talk about that. So we're very, we live in this place. So we have to become very different people. So the rest of Romans talks about renewing your mind. Romans talks about, were you there on Sunday, chapter 8? Okay, you got to hear chapter 8 because it talks a lot about it. It's a very powerful passage that teaches us how we can become that, what you're talking about. Take on this peace. Take on these things. So it's it's something that we have to. That's why we do these studies is because we got to learn and we got to grow and we got to change. We got to renew our mind. And be able to become that. Yes. I found I understand what you're saying because you're really in the soul. what I found for me I found that he is not peace. And I when I do feel whatever, I just don't like it. get close to it. I say it, I say it's you are That's right. And you do get a comfort like its things. Right. Because there's crazy. Right. But I found that he is my peace. And so if we have in some definitely peace and both of them, then he is peace. Yes. Amen. And you don't believe it, you're declaring this. things over yourself. So you're saying, Lord, you are my peace, strength, you go before me and you fight those battles for me, so I don't need to worry. And in saying that you're giving life to that. So read to me. I like that. Read to me Mark 5, 34. Who has it? Very good, Shannon. Um, He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. Go in what? Go in peace. So Jesus healed this woman and he said, go in peace. Peace is a special legacy that Christians are to carry, that Jesus gives. Somebody, Luke 7, verse 50. Believe it or not, there's 50 verses, and at least I hope, because that's the number I have written down. But I did look it up, so I know it's there. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Go in peace. So Jesus, everything that Jesus did, he gives us peace. Now, for the sake of our question here, turn to Philippians 4, just for fun. And who's got it? Colleen. We'll let Colleen do it. Or the Colleen in the back row. Oh. Colleen Duke. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, read Philippians 4, start with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There you go. There's your recipe for peace. Yes. I was praying about that one time and asking God, I want to know your peace which passes all understanding. And it was just as plain as day I heard in my head, no, you're still trying to figure it out. Past, past it's past your understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it was like, oh, no, there it is. Yeah. Because I'm trying to do it myself. Very good. And he, he's saying, no, you can't do it yourself. You have to let me do it. And the recipe here is first to rejoice and to not allow anx- anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, Pray. So you can't worry about anything. Nobody can worry. All done worrying. But you may pray. No more fussing. No, I'm serious. It says that. It says that. Don't be anxious. So does it say you can be anxious in a few things? How about that really big thing? Just the really big things you can be anxious about. Little things, yeah, cut it out. No, he says do not. But in everything prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, how can you be thankful when it's a really big, nasty, but you're supposed to present your request to God, and the peace of God then will transcend. Okay, so come back to verse chapter five. Therefore, <laughs> since we have been justified through, we're going to get past the, through the first verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have peace with God. You have peace with God. And in this passage, he's not talking about peace in life. You have peace with God. And you got to think about that, because God's incredibly holy. You are incredibly unholy. God loves you with a special love, and he hates everything that's not right about you. He hates sin. So there's this wrath thing that's coming from God against all sin. And if I am sinful which I am just on a good day even, I'm sinful. There's always going to be wrath coming at me, right? But if I will take my faith and put it in Jesus Christ, and I put myself in Jesus Christ, now I'm justified, just as if I'd never sinned. The wrath of God now has been uh, ended in my life for me. I am no longer in the... the the way of wrath. I've gotten myself way over here. How many of you guys like that idea of just like, <sighs> separate yourself from all things. Get over here outside of that wrath thing that's going to be happening and is happening and in and is coming. And you are in this like quiet place with God. You're in peace with Him, with the God of the universe. That's you. So you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can only do it through, Lord, through Jesus. Through whom we have gained access by faith. You, you get to get in there by faith. Remember, it's all by faith, not by how cool you are. Into his grace in which we now stand. We stand in God's grace. And grace is a beautiful thing. God does this for us because he loves us so much and because he is so full of grace. So when you learn, you you know, we got to keep learning about the attributes of God. God is love, and he's very gracious. And we all know what grace is, not getting what we deserve, that desire for you. I I don't know about you, but how do you feel when somebody gives you grace? You know, you've just done something really stupid or whatever, but they look at you and go, you know, I really value you and I don't want to lose you. So it's Okay. I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to love you. How does that make you feel? It makes me want to dance a jig. Absolutely. And that's what Paul tells us to do right now. We've gained access by faith into this grace, grace in which we stand, and we rejoice. So that feeling of, Ah! Yeah! That has to happen, and it causes us to, it causes an emotional reaction within us of like, ah, yay, and remember I told you rejoice means to open your mouth and start blabbing, it means to use your voice to talk, to talk, to, to, to talk. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And hope is the most amazing thing. Hope is the thing that lights us on fire. It gets us through things. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is actually the beginning of faith. You can't have faith until you have hope. So you have a very sick disease. And you hear that maybe possibly God could heal you. That you could get healed what happens? Something's ignited in you. That's called hope. Really? So pretend that maybe you, we lived back in the days of Jesus, right? And you're blind or you're a leper. And there is no hope for you. There is none. There is no reason to believe that anything will ever get better. And all of a sudden you hear about this man that's going around healing everybody. And you're like, oh, maybe me too. That's called hope. And that is the beginning of faith. Faith is the substance now of things hoped for. After hope comes alive, then you start believing. Oh, Maybe for me too. I know God will do it for me. I know God will do it. Now I have faith. So you have to have hope before you have faith. So if God's promises haven't lit a fire in you of a possibility of better, of, of what God could potentially do for you. If you have not had hope spark in your life, you can't have faith. And if you're trying to be- hammer out faith without that spark of hope, it's going to be a very difficult walk. So how do you spark hope? Mm, by listening. There we go. Well, same thing. But by hearing. By hearing hearing God's promises you mean God wants me to have a great marriage you mean my marriage could actually be good you mean you mean I could actually be healed you mean I could actually you know that the promises of God and when the promises of God come that sparks hope and when you get hope fired up inside of you the next step is to believe the promises yeah so you got to have hope and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God. Now that thing right there, the, the, the phrase, we're hoping now. We're excited. We're very excited. We're really revved up because we've got peace and we've got grace and we've got hope. And it's hope of the glory of God. And uh, just this glory thing uh, is just amazing. What is God's glory? His presence. Well, why is it so amazing? Yes, yes. So if I were to ask you what is glory, it would be pretty hard to describe, right? But the Bible talks a lot about the glory of God. Constantly he talks about the glory of God and how important the glory of God is. And we're going to hear throughout the rest of Romans, you're going to hear little times where he says the glory of God, for the glory of God, glory, 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 glory. And the word glory can become really kind of ho-hum to us because I don't think we really get it. I don't think any of us have ever truly beheld the glory of God. So it's, 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 it's trying to get excited about something that we haven't seen yet entirely. And that's hard. Like if I were to go to the Grand Canyon and tell you how cool it is, you're like, "Yeah," But when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, you're like, wah! Right? So the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is what comes out of His holiness. So holiness is absolute perfection, absolute amazing, absolute greatest, biggest, wowest, most amazing, holy, holy, holy thing. And in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, verse 3, we find, is that what you're going to say? Isaiah 6, verse 3. We find the angels around the throne, and Shannon, you've got it. It looks like you're pointing at it. And they were. Don't call- oh, pointing. <laughs> well, you you were doing this. Yeah. You were you were there. <laughs> and they were calling to one another, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory." Okay, hold on. Holy, holy. This is what the angels are crying out around the throne. Holy, holy, holy. I cannot wait to be a part of that choir. That's going to be the best choir in the world. And you would think that the next line would say, the whole earth is filled with his holiness. But it doesn't. It says that the whole earth is filled with his glory. The glory is what holiness sheds. So if you've got holiness as the object, glory is what goes out of it. It's what holiness sheds. The glow ray that comes out of the holiness of God. So if the whole earth is filled with his glory, that means that his holiness has now shed itself upon the earth. It's being revealed to us. So when that sunset over Mount Rainier, when I come around the corner on Sunday morning and it is just like, that is a small shred, a ray of his glory that's coming from his holiness. When I stand in front of, you know, the Grand Canyon or, or what is it around the world here that is just like, what? Are you kidding me? That is the glory of God being shed. So our hope In all of this is that we are going to partake of the glory of God. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Can you imagine what will become of us when we stand in the, the rays or the, the whatever, the stuff that sheds off of His holiness and comes upon us? That is our promise. That will be such an amazing time. And it is something that we'll fully know when we stand in the throne room. But it is something that we have the promise of having little ticklers here on earth. Have you stood in worship and been all of a sudden overwhelmed with his presence and his glory? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. So we have two reasons to rejoice. And we talked about this. We get to rejoice in the glory of God that's coming and the grace and all this woo hoo, hippie, happy, fun stuff. And you get to rejoice the same word, rejoice, in all of your sufferings. How's that? Does that sit pretty good? Same emotion. Same emotion. (laughs) But that's what it says. Why? And we're going to give you a whole bunch of reasons here in Romans, but we're going to start off right now. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So character, the word character means being tried and approved. Perseverance means the ability to take your shoulder. It's called patience. The word perseverance means patience. And in the biblical meaning, it means strictly to put your shoulder under something and hold it there and push. Just give pressure. Just, just do this and never quit. Never quit never quit, 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 never stop, never get tired, never give up, never say it'll never happen, never, never just, mm, and just keep going. Never stop. So suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because he has poured out his love. Now we're back to love. Remember, I told you the most overarching. Theme of Romans is God's love. His unabated, totally perfect love he has for you. Verse 6. For you see, just at just the right time, when we were still powerless. So the word there, powerless, does some of your Bibles say weak? We were still weak or powerless Without without strength. So I want you to kind of hear that. I want you to kind of get that feel. When we were absolute... What would be the word? Helpful. Pansy. Helpless. Incapable. Absolutely incapable. You see, at the right time, when we were... And see, it's the right time. When we were still powerless, without strength, weak, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Jesus did this For us in our worst. He didn't wait till we got anywhere near anything good. So your good means your behavior, your good doesn't mean much to him in this respect. Because he did it when you were at your very worst anyway. (laughs) Right? While you were the weakest. I'm going to be talking a lot about this on Sunday, so I'm trying to hold myself back to not spill all the beans. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would one die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Now, to bring a little understanding, a little clarification, the word in the Greek for righteous means someone who was bad but chooses to do right. Okay, That word righteous there brings that connotation. So they're just kind of a basic person who just chooses you know, one day to do something good as opposed to doing something bad, and the next day they might choose something bad. But they choose good. They are right. To, they've chosen to do right. Okay? So very rarely will someone die for someone who chooses to do good. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Now, that word good man there means uh, actually an inherently good person. Have you ever met somebody who's just like inherently really good? You know, like, do you ever do anything? Do you ever get a runny nose? Do you? <laughs> do you ever... Yawn, you know, <laughs> sneeze, because I never see anything imperfect come out of you. Do you ever? Do you know anybody like that? So that's what he's trying to say here: that very rarely will someone die for you know a righteous man, just somebody who picks to do good on one day. Though for a good man, maybe someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love for us that while we were still sinners, He died for us. Christ died for us. So, God's love, he demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The fact that God could look at us at our very, very worst and love us means that he is not repelled by sin. He is not repelled by our evil. And I take that as a challenge to you and I. Was that Kendall? (laughs) I want to take that as a challenge to you and I because in our world as we're dealing with other people around us we have to be very careful that we would love with the love of God and that the evil that maybe some around us would be operating in would not repel us. And I don't know about you but sometimes I don't like it. I want to judge it. I want to run away from it. I want, I want to get rid of it. But yet God demonstrates what his love is like here. And so if you ever wonder, well, you know, I wonder what God's love is like, it's right here. So if you can love the worst sinner out there and actually maybe sacrifice something for them, it's a good thing. I have been challenged in the last year, year and a half with I think the whole Christian community has been challenged greatly say even with you know the the prevalence or the breaking out it seems in our culture of homosexuality. You know what are we going to do about that? Are we going to abhor it and hate it and Judge it, or are we going to do what God did? That even in the because that was a part of the world, that was part of the sin. That even to demonstrate His love, He died for that. So can we love that too? Can we embrace? Now it doesn't mean we approve. God never approves of it. In fact, wrath is coming. You know, read chapter, read Romans one. Wrath is coming. We don't have to worry about wrath. We don't have to make more wrath. It's not your job to bring wrath and judgment. It's your job to reach in and say, listen, I love you. Let me understand you a little bit better. And eventually you'll hear some hurt in their heart. And you can bring salvation to their heart. And maybe you can be the one that will usher them from the wrath of God into the heart of God. Amen? That while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. It dem- that demonstrates his love for us. Since we have now been justified, what's the word justified mean? Just as if I had never done it. There you go. That's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. Since now we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So I was reading um, in some of the commentaries, and it was very fun how they talked about this, uh, that even when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him. Through the death of his son. Now, death is usually seen as kind of a weakness. It's, it's kind of at our lowest. We become the most powerless when we're dead, when we die, and we're dying, and, and, and we're, we're the least effective when we're dying. And if God, at the moment of his death, if Jesus, through his death, which could be construed as the weakest time of his life, was so powerful that it caused us to be reconciled with God. If at the weakest moment in Jesus' life, it could be said, that such amazing things happened between you and God, how much more? Everybody say, how much more? How much more? And he's trying to show you this, that Jesus' death, though it did such Incredible things, and we've just spent however long talking about what his death did. He's telling us right here, he's he's wanting us to shift again in our mind and not just stay at his death. How much more? Everybody circle, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So there's two pieces that we have to identify with in Jesus. We have to identify with his death. we got to get this thing, that we're sinners, he died. We're in him. We died on that cross. Death. But we also have to um, identify with his life. And that's coming in Romans. But there's So there's two things we have to identify with, his death and his life. Verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Um, not only so. Uh, not only is this so. In other words, that you know, when we were enemies, he reconciled us through death. And how much more now uh, have we been reconciled? Now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but also we rejoice. So, what does rejoice mean? Remember, and just happy, talking about it, boasting about it. Yippee! Yes, I can't believe it. In God. So they've been talking about a lot of this that, a lot of this happens through Jesus Christ. Now right here he says, I want you to rejoice in God, in God's heart, in who God is. He wants us now to shift a little bit away from the work of Jesus Christ and just take a moment and pause about God. The creator, the true creator, the father God, this love being that has set this whole thing up. Take just a moment and rejoice in God. Rejoice in God himself, in his existence, in his attributes, in his justice, in his holiness, in his mercy, and in his truth. Take a moment. We rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Okay. So now verse 12. You guys getting something? Now it's going to get real good. This is my favorite chunk right here. Therefore, just as sin... There's another therefore. There's a lot of therefores. I didn't realize that one was there. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So I'm going to take... See, do your, does your Bible there at the end of verse 12 have a little dash? Okay, so what they what a lot of the scholars feel like is that the rest, the, a couple, the next couple of verses are parenthetical. There's like parentheses parentheses around them. So I want to take the thought that we just had, and I want to expound on that, and then we're going to kind of put a little pause on it, and then we're going to do those next two verses, then we'll come back to the thought on verse 15. But this is really good, and you have to re- realize this. Just as sin entered the world through one man. So one man, one man, Adam, chose to disbelieve and disobey. One act totally corrupted the rest of humanity. Death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Now, remember, in the garden, prior to chapter 3, when they sinned, They were eating of what tree? Tree of life. life. The knowledge of good and evil was the one they weren't supposed to eat of. That was the boo-boo tree. That was the one that messed the whole thing up. But prior to that, they were eating of the tree of life. And they were living. They were not dying. There was no death in that garden. Not one thing. Not one thing. Animals didn't die. They weren't eating animals for food. There was no death Everything was life. And when he ate of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I had a whole teaching in Genesis about the, that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Until he ate of that, they only had knowledge of good. They had no experience with bad, with evil, with sin. But the fact that that tree was the one thing that said, God said, do not. That when they ate of that and they disobeyed, now they became very, very personally knowledgeable of good and evil. Now they know what evil felt like. Now all of a sudden, for the first time, they felt guilt. For the first time, they felt shame. For the first time, they ran and hid from God when he walked in the garden. For the first time, they felt like they needed to cover up. For the first time, they felt that they were not good enough. For the first time, they had to be something on the outside. They had to cover up, and they had to try to be something else. Now they have experienced the knowledge of good and evil. And from that point on, they could not live in the garden because they could not eat of the tree of life any longer. And when they were removed from the tree of life, now they began to die. Did they die immediately? No. But the process of death was allowed to begin within our members. And prior to that, they had not. So through that one man's action, death now began to reign in humanity and in the world in general. The rest of creation could not eat of that tree either. The animals couldn't eat of it. The thought is that the animals were eating of it, that there was no death. And to cover, what, what did God do when he finally got them, you know, drug them out of the bushes? No, get over here, let's talk. Now, who told you you were naked, you know? God killed an animal, and that was the first sacrifice. That was the first death of an animal. Actually, that was probably the first death. The process of death had begun, but that was the first death. So therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So now do you understand how death came in? And in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. So now here's the parentheses, okay? So he's going to kind of take a little minute and he's going to kind of take a little rabbit trail. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. Now, remember the law. Let's kind of go back to the law. The law is a a kind of a big word. And what have I been telling you what the law is? Culture. Culture and customs of God and how God works and how he is, how he lives, what he thinks, how he feels, what his desires are, and how how he rolls. Right? That's his law. And it's written in man's hearts. So from Adam to Moses, what was available to mankind about knowledge about God was what was written in their hearts and what they saw in creation and what they remembered from the garden and what they orally passed on to their children. Their children weren't in the garden, but Adam and Eve were, and they talked about it. So between Adam and Moses there was still sin because they had enough knowledge of who God is and all of that in them to be able to, to know that they're falling short, basically, right? So when Moses came, that's when God wrote now not just the laws on their heart, but on tablets of stone. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What else? Thou shalt not murder. Keep the Sabbath holy. Come to my house. Don't mow the lawn all day on Sunday. Give your, give your time to me, basically, right? That's how he would write it today. I know he would. Um, don't take my name in vain. Don't do that. How many times are here? Oh my God. You know, I just, my heart just, it's wrenched. Don't do these things. Even that's in and of itself. Is nationwide, you know, humanity wide. So Moses got the written law, but between Adam and Moses, it's written on our hearts. And we've learned in Romans that sin becomes more sinful with the law. Because when I'm shown my list of rules and regulations, now I know that I've broken them. I don't just kind of know because I know I've kind of not been good. Now I know which ones I've broken and how I've broken them. Right? And it becomes very, very clean and plain and clear. So what it says here is that for before the law was given, in other words, before Moses, sin was in the world. So he's talking to these Jews and his Jews are going, well, how do, how were they sinning? They didn't have a law yet. They don't know what they're saying. No, he's saying, no, they, they sinned. I have no doubt about it. But sin was not taken into account when there is no, no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So do you understand what I'm saying? He's saying, nope, it was there. It was there. Don't worry about it. Just because they didn't have your lists of rules and regs does not mean they weren't sinning. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. So even Adam, Adam had the word of the Lord do not eat that. He had the word of the Lord. It was plain and clear, but he did it, right? So coming back to 15, so he kind of takes this little parenthetical, little sidetrack. So let's read 12 and then go to 15. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, now I'm going to jump down to 15, But the gift is not like the trespass, for if many died by the trespass of the one man, that would be Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? So what we have is we have creation, one man, sin, and through his one act, it's on everybody. And it's permeated throughout the entire race, human race. Then, And time goes and time goes and time goes. Then Jesus comes. And through Jesus, now through one man, grace is available to all men. So if you can kind of see it through that sieve there, that timeline... Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment, the judgment followed one man's sin, one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift following many trespasses brought justification. So I want you to think about this. Creation. Everything's perfect. Gift of God. Garden of Eden. Incredible. Eat whatever you want, except for that one tree. Run around. This is great. Everything's perfect, perfect, perfect. One man refused broke it, now sin, death, all the way across everything. So now we have this big dispensation here of humanity where it's just evil. We've got evil so bad that God wants to, he repents of creating men in the time of Noah. And he says, what have I done? There's only one man down there that has any kind of righteousness named Noah. Well, you know, I'll save Noah, but I got to wipe everything else out because it's so evil. Evil permeated the earth not long Between Adam and Noah. In the Bible, it's only a few chapters. So the evil is just rampant. But the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin, because he came out of perfection and turned from perfection into sin. Now what we've got is incredible sin, and God, through one man, but through the gift uh, that followed all these trespasses, He shifts it now and brings justification and glory to all the men. It's kind of a cool picture to see how God did that. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus? So I want you to just keep seeing perfection. One man messes it up. Complete evil. Jesus Christ, one man, shifts it all for the rest of humanity. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification. So let's go back up here. Perfection of everything. One man. Through one trespass condemnation seeps through into every human being. Condemnation. It's a very interesting word. What does condemnation mean? To be condemned means you come up to the judge. The judge looks at you. He reads your file. He hits the gavel. He says guilty and sends you off to your death penalty. No recourse. What is it called when, when these guys on death row, they keep Appeal, no appeal. So now condemnation is in throughout the entire human race. But so also the result of one act of righteousness. So now back down to Jesus here. The one act of righteousness and it's shifted now and it brings justification. So, Adam, one act of disobedience, condemnation. You are guilty. You will die. You, the wages of your sin is death. And death begins to reign all across the entire, the entire race of humanity. Death. The sentence of death, the wages of sin is death. Death, 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 death. death. But through the one act of righteousness, one act of righteousness, justification. So what is justification? So you come up to that same judge. The judge pulls your file out. And because the blood of Jesus has completely washed your file, he looks at your file and he says, I don't see anything here. 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 And like I preached last two weeks ago, Christians need to walk away from that place, that, that time of applying the blood of Jesus to their lives and realize that they are justified. That's what justification is. You are made as if you've never sinned. Condemnation has no right in your life. None. But how many of us walk around in condemnation? We let the, we let the enemy just do that to us. and We're like, oh, yeah, you're right. I am pretty lousy. You know what? You're right. I'm pretty rotten and you're right, and I probably shouldn't do anything till I get better, and, and you're right, and I and it, it's the thing that causes us to get burned out, it causes us all sorts of things, it causes us to stop, it causes us to not do the things God's calls us to do, it causes everything to go wrong. But it's a lie because you've been justified. So, verse 18, I'm going to read it again, because I think this is just so powerful. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass brought condemnation, guilt, death penalty for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness through, and I'm just going to add in there, Jesus is Christ, so you know whose act it is, was justification that brings life for all men. Life. No longer death but life for just as through the disobedience of one man. Now they're going to talk about it as disobedience. See, he he keeps going through this whole system here and he, he puts different words in it because he wants you to get a really good perspective of what happened. So now he says, just through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also the obedience of the one man The many are now righteous. Disobedience and obedience. Disobedience and obedience. Huge difference between Jesus and me. He lived a life of obedience. So we're talking a lot about the main overarching themes of Romans. The first one is that God loves us. The second one is that God wants relationship with us. He wants us very close to us. Have you ever had tried to have a relationship with someone who um, won't do things the way you want them to be done? Have you ever tried to have this relationship? To have a relationship with someone means there has to be unity. There has to be same steps being taken. We have to be in step with each other. We have to have the same mind. We have to have the same goals. We have to have the same, you know, mindsets and heart and everything for us to truly. Have you ever tried to do the three-legged race with somebody? You get tied up with, with somebody and you're doing this kind of thing and you're yanking each other. And, you know, you're not in unity, right? Have you ever, you're all laughing at me, but I think you're kind of getting it. For us to have a relationship with someone, it means that we have to be unified. It means that we have to be in step with each other. It means that we have to function together the same. Now, God and us, we are not peers. He is creator. We created. We are created. So there's an authority thing going on here. He is God. We are man. He is creator. creator. We're created. He is authority, and we're to be under authority. So for us to have relationship, we're going to have to figure out this authority thing. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago at church, about how important authority is and how important it is. I'm going to set aside general worldly authority, but with God. We have to be in step with him. And if we are not in step with him, then we are out of step with him. And if we're out of step with him, that means that we're not unified with him. We're disunified with him and we are not obeying his way. And if we're not obeying his way, we are what? Disobeying. When Jesus walked this earth, he walked for 33 years in complete obedience to his heavenly father. The only thing he would do are the things he heard his father do. The only things he said were the words he heard his father say. He never said his own words. He never thought, you know, did his own thing. He never went off and, you know, got tired and needed a vacation and so went and went to Las Vegas and everything that happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas and, and so had his moment and then came back and he never did that. He always obeyed even when it went counter to his own will. Once again, Gethsemane. Father, I have a human body. I'm in it right now. And I know what it feels like when I slam the hammer on my my thumb when we're building something. And I don't like pain. I don't want pain. I don't want to do the hard thing. If it's at all, all possible let this cup pass from me, and he prayed and he prayed until great drops of blood came from his brow. He wrestled his will down and came into complete obedience and Jesus christ's obedience was so complete that he death had no hold on him, none whatsoever. It had no right to him. Yet in his death, he was able to, through that position, take all of us with him into that death. And through that death, through his obedience, his complete submission of his will to the Father's will, complete, no rebellion, through that, it brought life to all men. Obedience. Obedience is huge. Let's turn over to John, if you would. I have a few more minutes, and I just want to bring this out to you. John 14. I love this passage because it's really, you get to see into the heart of Jesus, and he's praying for his disciples, and he's talking with his disciples, and wait a minute. And uh, if your Bible has the red letter edition, you're going to see that the next couple of pages is mostly red. This is Jesus talking, and it's in his last, last portion of his time on earth, and it's a good time. It's it's an amazing time. The end of chapter 13, Jesus is predicting Peter's denial of him. 13, verse 37, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus said, will you really lay your life down for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he goes into chapter 14 there, and he's comforting his disciples, and he's talking about how wonderful that, uh, this comforter that's going to come. Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes the Father except through me the one man if you really knew me you would know my father's well, you would know my father well from, from now on you you do you do know him and have seen him and he goes on down at verse 15 he says if you love me you will what what i command if you love me you will obey what i command and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, and he lives in you, and he will, he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever ha- has my commands and what? or obeys. Mine says obeys. He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. Skip down to 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will, what? My teaching. My father will love him and he will come to him and come and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not Obey my teaching. So do you hear the theme that Jesus is trying to instill in his disciples? This love relationship, this closeness that God wants to have with us, this daily step in, in in-step kind of motion that he wants to have with us is so intricately related to our obedience our willing to conform ourselves to him, our willingness to submit ourselves to him, our willingness to become more like him. And I don't know about you, but there's a piece of me that doesn't want to do that. I want to live it my way. But everywhere I let that reign in my life, everywhere I say, no me, God, no me, God. Like my little three-year-old when he was trying to tie his shoes. and I'm like, honey, no, that's not going to work. You got to do it this way. No me, no me. And then he comes up with this huge knot that just is terrible, you know, and you never can get him out, and it's horrible. No me, I do, I do, I'm better, I do. Jesus says, no, I want to love you. I want to be very close to you. I need you to conform, to obey my authority in your life. And we have to come to a place where authority is not a scary thing. We have been trained to not trust authority. Maybe the authorities in your life have been bad. Maybe they have been unfair. Maybe our, your earthly fathers did not love properly. I don't know. It is very, very, very important. Obedience carries with it so much. So much so that Jesus' obedience, to the extent that he was obedient, brought life to all mankind. Now, we're already not perfectly obedient. But what if we become more obedient? What will come from our lives? What if we take hold of the rebellion that's inside of us naturally and we destroy it and we get rid of it and instead we yield to him? Obedience. So let's finish Romans 5. I won't keep you all the way through 16 tonight. We have a Kindle. how good for just as through the disobedience of one man many were made sinners so also through the obedience of one man many will be made righteous i just can't get off that verse for just as many as the for just as though diso- the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners how much comes from our life when we're disobedient how much effect does it have on the people around us when we're in disobedience we're not walking according to the Lord. Our families, our friends, those around us, generations, disobedience affects more than just you in that moment. And in same way, obedience, men, women who walk in obedience, it's going to affect generations as well. The law was added so that trespasses might increase. This is verse 20. So, in other words, when the law was written, all the little one, two, three, four, five, all of a sudden we became more aware of how wrong we really were, right? It wasn't just an inclination on the inside. Now we've got the checklist that we have failed. The law was added so that trespass might increase. But where sin increases, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. There are two, I I read an incredible sermon today, and if I had more than negative three minutes I would read you this because it is incredible. And it talk, it's an entire sermon on that line right there. And it talks about the two queens that want to reign in your life. What are those two queens? Sin wants to reign in your life and it wants to bring death to everything you are. But so also grace also wants to reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life into your world. I pick the grace of God and life. Amen. So I, I'm hoping that you're kind of seeing a little bit of under, you know, a little bit more understanding as to sin and grace and the work of Jesus overcoming the work of Adam. I always like to take just a minute or two, if you have to go, that's fine. I always like to take a minute or two and listen now to hear what's going through your minds. If you'll keep any of your comments just real quick and just thought-provoking, what's, what has gone through your head?